I'm curious about, from your standpoint and the, the kids that you teach, what is the impression you're getting about the economy from people? You know, and then from your perspective as somebody who deals with it every day, what do you, how do you, how do you balance that out with what you feel is actually happening? Yeah, I think on average everybody's always a little bit more pessimistic about the economy than what's what's actually happening, which certainly doesn't mean things are good. But you know, in good times that tends to happen, in bad times that tends to happen. Overall, I mean, there's there's some good news on the economy, but there's certainly a number of signs that are concerning. What worries you most? Well, in, inflation has has been bad, right? It's the first time. Basically dealing with inflation for anybody who's, what, 50 or younger, wouldn't remember inflation rates, essentially, right? I mean, they, mm-hmm. they were died down in the early, very early 80s, then they've been gone since then. Year-over-year inflation, still 6%. It was higher before, and wages aren't keeping up with that, or they haven't kept up with that. Hope that turns around, but... When that happens, when wages do not keep up with inflation, it means the average worker is poorer, and that's what that's what's happened in the last year and a half. And so, uh, we, are we always pessimistic about everything all the time? Then inflation is feeding that. You know, if if you ask me to name twenty things that are going well with the economy, I could list them. Sure, all right? sure, yeah. But but all you know, all, we only th- maybe it's just our human nature to accentuate the negative. I, uh, that could be, and. Uh, but even if you came on three years ago, two years ago, when, uh, well, I could argue, right before COVID, one could make the argument that was the best economy in American history. You could argue that. And there were a lot of signs. Unemployment rates were very low. Inflation was low. There would be plenty of folks coming on, though, saying, well, what about the debt? The debt's been higher. What about and the deficits? What about in- income inequality? Uh, should we do more about that? Right? There, there were still plenty of folks who I'd say were a little bit more pessimistic than normal then. Uh, now things are a little bit worse. Things to worry about. There's inflation. Uh, the job market participation rate took a massive drop once COVID hit, and it really hasn't rebounded. And that seems concerning. The There was a lot of spending, a lot of spending during COVID, which added dramatically to the debt. And, and it's the debt's a weird one, because every time a president's in office of one party, that party never talks about it and then the other party talks about it (laughs) and and that's just going to flip and it's a sad i think that's a sad reality right now republicans are more focused on the debt if republicans win in 2024 i bet it's going to be democrats that are more focused on the debt the last time i can remember a politician suggesting that you roll up your sleeves and do something for the good of the country it was jack kennedy during his inaugural address i haven't heard anybody since saying let's tighten our belts and let's get rid of of this debt and let's suffer um we just don't hear anybody get elected on that yeah. basis. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, and if you look at the options, it's not necessarily easy to figure out what to do to reduce it. It would probably require uh, some combination of entitlement reductions. So Social Security, like not, probably not reducing the actual amount, but lower cost of living increases. Um, it would require lower government spending overall, probably require lower military spending, and probably require, and might require higher taxes too. But what's the alternative, Matt? We can't keep borrowing and yep. borrowing forever, can we? At what point do we implode? We like to kick the can down the road. Yeah. Is, is that an actual <laughs> economic principle? So the, I think 
a key thing is if can you get the deficit down to zero, and then you still have the debt, because if you can get the deficits even eventually and hmm. roll with even deficits, and then if the economy grows, the debt is less and less concerning each year. If if GDP keeps growing, say inflation adjusted rate two percent per year, and you have a fixed level of debt and it's not going up. Well, 20, 50, 100 years from now, that debt is far less important because you know hmm. the debt would be the same amount nominally, but the impact on on the budget is way less because everybody's so much wealthier. I, I would think if you're looking to control, I wouldn't look to actually reduce the debt at this point, but I would look to try to get deficits down to zero. So you're not adding to the debt year over year, and then hopefully with economic growth, the debt becomes much less trivial. But how do politicians get elected without promising to do more for you? Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's that's the trick, right? I mean, more roads. And, you know, I mentioned a key way, and most economists think if, you know, there's, if you look at the spending on, on and an, you know, entitlement spending is a big portion. Well, who's who's the number one voting block? It's it's older, older individuals <laughs> who are getting Social Security, and that doesn't seem like a a very way good way to get elected. And that's there's a whole branch in economics called public choice theory, which really looks at a lot of these very tough issues. It looks at politicians from the cynical lens of they're not looking out for the best interest of society, they're looking for the best interest to get reelected. And that's really cynical, because I do think most politicians do, of course, have some interest in, in helping yeah. society. But but there is, I mean, I think we could also all re recognize, they want to they want to get reelected. And and there's, there's, you know, public choice theory, though, will kind of go with the assumption that the, the goal is to get reelected. Well, we used to have Professor Stamos here from Bucknell University when he was still teaching, and he would say the debt and deficit doesn't matter. You know, it just doesn't count. By the time we pay it back, our dollar will be worth so much more that it isn't going to really matter, and that the, the advantages of the borrowing were greater because we got to spend the money now, you know, just like a household. You know, you get to have the new car now, that kind of thing. Well, <laughs> earlier we talked about pessimism versus optimism, and w maybe more so than in some other fields, pessimism matters. Right, it can slow us down. It can reduce my. Uh, uh, we learned that in the oil fields when we when we found out that all the numbers added up that gas prices shouldn't be nearly as high as they were. One of the things we found out was fear was helping to drive it. So tell me about this this impact that the ant intangible pessimism. Well, yeah, if people are less op optimistic about the the economy. They may they may go spend a little bit less. If firms are less optimistic about the outlook of the economy, they might be more hesitant to make investments that could expand their businesses, could help with efficiency, and could really help the economy grow. I think that that's a couple of the big worries about a about a pessimistic outcome on the economy. So. But what about the political impact of this stuff? For example, right now we're, we're facing default by July if they don't do something. Uh, and inevitably, they're going to try and find some way to kick the can down the road. But, you know, the debt ceiling, uh, it, it seems to me like a ridiculous dog chasing its tail routine. Why not just get rid of it if that's the case? And is there a benefit to it from your standpoint, or is, there, is it just all smoke and mirrors? It's a good question. And Admittedly, I don't think I've studied the politics behind the benefits or costs of the debt ceiling as much. The costs of it seem somewhat obvious in terms of there's this argument all the time uh, about what happens and what would indeed happen if we default and what goes on there. 
What could be the benefits of this? Uh, there's if you could leverage this to try to decrease uh, the amount of deficit spending, you could argue that that's a benefit. If you if you could leverage these arguments and make a credible threat that we won't increase that, that unless you come to some concessions on spending, taxes and spending, that could be a threat. Um, the that might be one of the bigger ones but it's like a kabuki dance i mean obviously congress at one point felt that we need to put a cap on the amount of money we borrow and then they just play this game where they keep yeah. raising it and raising it and raising it what's the point of it well so i, I guess if I mean, an interesting question is to ask what might our debt be like if we didn't have it i mean we have this and we have these arguments over the debt that do come mm-hmm. up reasonably often could make a pretty good argument that by having this and by having these arguments, it does highlight the debt. And if we didn't have it, maybe maybe it would even be worse. Um, I mean, it's 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 an interesting question, and we won't know. We don't get to rewind the clock, and you know, I've, I've oh, done experiments for a lot of my research, and how fun would it be to just rewind the clock and then right. do it without that and see what happened? But uh, <laughs> we don't have the benefit of of doing that with our. Yeah, you do experiments where you, you reset all the parameters and then yep. inject something else. Explain that to our audience. I just think sure, that's interesting. Sure, sure. So a recent one we did was a couple years ago, or about a year and a half ago, we brought in Susquehanna students who hadn't received their flu vaccine in the with the flu drive. Uh, we put out a call. They came into a session. And we actually ran an auction to see how much they would need to be paid to to get the flu shot. It's it's an estimate of um, you know it's 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 not really a willingness to pay, right? If you hold up an item, um, you know, I've got my iPhone here for notes. So if you hold up a, you know, if you sell an iPhone, people would be willing to pay for that. Well, in terms of a flu shot, some people are willing to pay to get one, but then others, they don't want one. Um, you know, only I think it's 45 or so percent of the population right now has the, gotten the flu vaccine this year of, of adults. So 55 percent haven't, it, despite the fact that for many people this is free, uh, free monetarily. So why didn't they get it? Well, there's some people who are very stringently uh, against vaccines. They're hesitant to get that. What we found with this is of uh, half of the people would get it for free. Like they're, they're fine getting it. They just haven't gotten it yet. Uh, the other half said, I wouldn't get it for free. But most of those who wouldn't get it for free, it wasn't... Uh, it was they they'd be willing to get it for twenty dollars or less. <laughs> so it, it's it's not that they have these very very strong um, views against vaccines. It's it's an inconvenience and it's not it's a hassle and it's you know it's not fun to have somebody jab you in the arm, right? I mean, then maybe the arm will be sore for a couple days and they just they didn't want to deal with it, but it wasn't that big of a deal. And then there was a small subset who needed a lot of money. They, they didn't want to get that. And, and they would be, you know, they you know, the people who are most vaccine resistant. And that, that somewhat makes sense with what you see in the world. No amount of money would make them get it. What about the COVID vaccine? Did you run the same test? We would have loved to. <laughs> okay. But um, we weren't able to get the access to the vaccines to be able to do that. Our initial idea on that was how cool would it be to, to estimate on that. But I think a lot of the same principles apply. If you think about if you think about COVID with the initial wave of the vaccines, I think of something about three-fourths of Americans got the first yeah, gotten one. at yep. least one dose. Um, 
a very small percentage have gotten the most recent booster. So there's a there's a huge portion of the population that, you know, it's tough to label them as anti-vaxxers or vaccine deniers or whatever derogatory term is they've gotten one, but they don't think the benefit of the most recent vaccine exceeds the cost of the most recent. So what are some things economics could indicate on that? Well, if if getting those is really beneficial to the economy or to public health, maybe firms would want to give a, a paid day off to get that or some small incentive if you go ahead and, and get that. Because for most people, clearly it's not this real resistance to the COVID vaccine. It's, I've gotten one. I think there's some protection there. I could get another one, but I know I'm going to get sick for a day <laughs> if I get another one. And most people who get COVID now, it doesn't seem that terrible. I'll just take my chances. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm hypothesizing, but there's a huge portion that that, that explanation makes a lot of sense. Well, looking at the international scene, um, President Putin today, in a rather long harangue to his parliament, his State of the Soviet Union address, or whatever you want to call it, said that despite all of our sanctions and all the things that we did to slow their economy down, their economy actually only shrank by 2%. Um, You know, how did we fare during the pandemic compared to that? I I think we're still seeing the effects. I mean, you can't shut down the economy and not, not have an impact. What we ended up doing is flooding the economy with money. And... Over the past two years, we've seen, we saw a massive drop initially in GDP and then it came back. I still think we're seeing a little bit of the impact of this with all of the money and the fact that wages have dropped, right? The Mm -hmm. average American's work, you know, the average American worker's wages were lower last year and they're still lower. I'm looking it up before, year to year, it looks like wages increased on a nominal basis by about 5%, but inflation was 6%. And some people would say, okay, we didn't have a, we're not in a recession. I could argue that that last year when inflation adjusted wages dropped, that that was a a recession. It was just, it manifested itself in a different way. Instead of a higher unemployment rate, everybody just got poorer. Uh, At least workers got poorer. Well, two quarters of negative growth used to be the indicator, didn't it? And and we did have that. Um, Yeah, it was a key indicator. I actually had to go back to my notes from econ, because there was the whole debate on that. And indeed, in my notes, it didn't say two quarters is the definitive. You know, it's more of its prolonged um, negative downturn. But every time we'd had two quarters of negative GDP growth, it had been classified as a recession. Of course, every other time, we'd also seen a spike in unemployment rates. Which, so it made it a little bit weird um, in terms of what I, you know, if you want to call it the recession of 2022. Well, if, if you look at where you say you do go back and try and reset the scale, if you reset the scale to before the pandemic and the pandemic never occurred, where, would, where do you think we'd be today? Further ahead, or oh, I think well, absolutely. I I think we'd be further ahead. Now, there's some some things we've gained. I think we, you know, the the jump start on work from home and virtual conferencing gave everybody a lot of skills much more quickly than would have happened otherwise. So I think that was kind of a key work benefit that happened, and we're still figuring that out. But no, I, I think there would not have been, I mean, you would have had more people working. I can't imagine we would have had the drop in the labor force. So you have more individuals working. If you have more individuals working, you have more produced. Society just has more. And then how is that all spread out across society is, is you know, the next question. But it's, it's tough to fathom that we wouldn't have been better off fi- 
economically. Right. We were talking, Matt, and you mentioned that the, um, you know, the, we could arguably say that we had a really good economy before the pandemic started. And of course, that was roughly the Trump administration was the end of that period and the start of the the uh, uh, COVID <laughs> scare in this yeah, country. Yeah. But, you know, let's take pres- presidents going from, let's say, a Donald Trump's philosophy to a Joe Biden's philosophy. What impact would that have on the economy if everything were left untouched as far as the pandemic went? Yeah, and I mean, the question, I guess, is the big question is what has Biden done that's been that different? The There was the massive stimulus bill when the unemployment rate was already pretty low. And most economists would, would have argued that that's not appropriate, that if you're that you look to inject spending or cut taxes to boost the economy when you have higher unemployment rates that's the gen- that's the general lo- you know that's the general goes back to keynesian economics and in you know after biden was first elected a couple years ago put in a massive like the third covid stimulus the first one i think a lot of economists were behind because okay there was this massive drop you know people stopped working the right. first covid stimulus under trump i think a lot of economists were behind the second one is a little bit more suspect and that was still under trump the third one like what are you doing people uh, that way i mean so there's that the other uh, the other question uh, biden's been pretty hostile to uh, fossil fuels and energy so I, you know if you're if you're going to make it so people who would produce oil and gas feel like they're threatened and don't want to invest, then one shouldn't be surprised if you see a spike in in gasoline prices or energy prices. So th- those are a couple things where I think the economically we've been we've been impacted. All right, we have a question from a caller. Bill from Bloomsburg, thanks for calling in. Professor Rosu can hear you. Hey, how you doing, Matt? Uh, doing well, Your thanks. Honor, Mark. Hey, uh, Mark, earlier in the program, you said you could name 20 great things that uh, Biden has done in this economy. Uh, I'd like you to name 10. <laughs> oh, 20 good things about the economy, not specifically Biden, but things that are doing... Well, it, it, it all ties in together. I mean... Uh, no, like no, no actually, five. not true. But that's not a question. You have a professor question. I'll answer your questions a little bit later on in the all show. Right. Uh, Matt, here, here you go. How... If uh, Trump was still in office and he 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 uh, had NATO paying their share and everything and, and, and America first, how much further would he, we we have we would be compared to this uh, guy that should be in jail? Okay. I don't know. All right, we got you, Bill. Thank yeah. you. The, so the differences between Trump and by I. It's a good question. I don't know what what Trump might have done different. He pushed through two stimulus packages. Uh, would he have gone for a third? That I don't know. I, I really think that was uh, a a big start, a kickstart to a lot of the inflation issues we had. All the massive amounts of government spending, currency uh, changes. I don't think he would have been as hostile to energy policy. So I don't think gas prices would have spiked as much. As high. Uh, th- those are a couple of things that I that I think would have demanded. Steve, you're on the line. Thanks for calling in. You you have a question for our good guest. From New Jersey. What really defines a recession? I mean, you hear everything. Are we in one now? Are we on a rebound? Okay, you heard your question. Yeah, that's... uh, It's a great question that's 
way more complex, unfortunately, than I'd like it to be. Really, what defines it is uh, is the board that states whether or not we're in a recession. L- like literally, that's what defines whether we're in a recession. If the you know if the government says we are or not. <laughs> Traditionally, like, what do you look for? I mean, it's been two two consecutive quarters of GDP growth had always been the metric. Of course, when we'd had that metric, of course, it had always corresponded to a higher unemployment rate. Um, I, if you ask me to side on did we have a recession in 2022, I would I, I I would lean yes that we had one because while unemployment didn't fall, the GDP fell and worker wages dropped. The average amount wages in if inflation adjusted wages dropped, so I would argue we're in one, uh, or we had one. Are we going to have one upcoming where unemployment rates increase? That's that's a big question people are wondering. Well, about. if what gets you into it, if two quarters of negative growth traditionally gets you into it, what gets you out of it? Two quarters of positive growth? Yeah, growing again, right? I mean, when the economy grows again, and it doesn't always take two quarters of negative growth to get that. So. Uh, you know, the spring of 2020 was defined as a recession. There were not two quarters of negative growth. There was a massive, massive drop in economic output when the when the world shut down, when the U.S. economy shut down for for a short period of time, and that decreased output. I mean, enormously, and that's that was classified as a recession, even though it wasn't two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Uh, so you can have it where it wasn't quite as much, but it, it's, yeah, mac, macro's interesting in some ways. It's these weird nuances, and, and in some ways, does it matter or does it not matter? In some ways, it doesn't matter. Like, we've, we've all the things we've experienced, we've experienced, but then there's the narrative on, you know, how good are things, and should I be reelected, and all of that. So all right, We have another caller on the line, Mike from Bloomsburg. You have a question for our guest. I do. My question is based on the fact that millions of people that don't speak English are coming across our border, and border protection resources are being directed to accommodate that, which is allowing more drugs to come in. So my question is this. What do you think the increased cost of supporting uh, the non-English speaking people and then the social cost of all these fentanyl uh, deaths that are occurring is going to have on inflation in the future? Okay, sir, your question. Thanks. All right, thank you. So I'm Crystal a little... Crystal ball, please. Yeah, so I, I don't know about what costs for enforce, border enforcement have been by any means. I'm generally more uh, pro-immigration and see the benefits. Um, and I could actually even argue some of the inflation we've seen in wage rates, especially on the lower end of wage rates, have been because there was a dramatic decrease in in foreign workers in the United States uh, for, for a short period of time, right? And you, it's kind of basic economics. You lower the supply of, of workers, you're going to increase the wages. Um, so overall, having more um, more workers in, especially if it's workers who can do a ta- who are happy to do a particular job and do it well for less than people um, you know Americans are willing to do, that would actually drive inflation downward, really? not uh, because it's you've got individuals doing it for less, drives prices down and not up. 
What about the cost of services, you know, for not just for these people, but let's take a look at uh, local local governments. You know, they've got to balance their budget. In Pennsylvania, municipalities are required to have a balanced budget. A state, I think, is required to have a balanced budget. But the federal government isn't. You know, how difficult would it be to get us to a balanced budget so that we could at least not keep increasing the debt and the deficit? At the federal level? Yeah. Fed, it, it would not, it's not going to be easy at the moment. It, it will require, it, there's, there's apps and games you can play to try to balance the budget, but it would probably require some pretty tough choices um, in terms of how much are we spending on the military, how much are we spending on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, what are, how much are we collecting in tax revenue. It, it would it would require some some tougher choice. I don't think it would be easy by any means. Um, One of our listeners says, "How is our current energy policy of the Biden administration affecting the overall economy?" So that's hmm, a complicated a question one. that would take yeah, far boy. longger than the. <laughs> that's a thirty-second answer well, I'm going to give. But one one key thing is anything you do to. Uh, decrease natural gas and oil and gasoline production should increase the prices for those products that will uh, that has a big impact right, uh, so actual decreases that has an impact but we had experts in energy call us and and they said actually pessimism or this restriction mentality has a negative impact too sure and if if you're a firm, you want to invest if you think you'll get a return on the investment. And if you are questioning whether there will be new regulations that will restrict your ability to earn mm-hmm. profits, you will be less likely to to engage in, you know, oil exploration, for example. We're running up against your time limit here, but one thing we did want to ask you is about who's coming in. Who are you bringing into Susquehanna? Oh, what yeah. programs are we looking at this no, year? No, thank you. Um, yeah, we've got a couple good speakers coming up later this semester. We have a lot of speakers throughout, but um, we've got David Brown, who's the host of the Business Wars podcast, coming to campus <laughs> on March 29th, and also author of the book, The Art of Business Wars. That's at Another s- conservative. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. If, actually, I don't know if that's the case. Uh, um, I have a detail. Uh, 7 p.m. on uh, Wednesday, March 29th, and that's open to the public for anybody who'd like to to come to that. Should be a great talk. Um, that discussion will be on um, you know analyzing various business wars that have happened and the lessons that we can learn from them. And then uh, Mary Childs, who's uh, on Planet Money NPR show and author of The Bond King, is going to be coming to campus on Wednesday, April 19th for a 4:15 p.m. lecture. That's the same uh, night as uh, Yitzhak Perlman's coming oh. to campus, so um, we moved we moved um, Mary Childs to 4:15 because we didn't want the attendance at Yitzhak Perlman to drop dramatically because she was presenting opposite of him. So that was, but that's that's by joke that nobody's laughing at. But the um, sorry, but that's open to the public as well. 4:15, and she's going to be talking about uh, lessons in leadership. Fantastic. And I get a chance to speak to some of these folks from time to time, so thank you for continuing yeah, to arrange thank you that. For, thank you for hosting them. Yeah, a lot of these folks will be on WKOK Sunrise in the weeks ahead, or maybe on the mark. You never know. Never you know. might be a world-renowned economist in that seat <laughs> the next time you come back in here, We Joe. already have one. <laughs> uh, Steve, if you ask a quickie question, uh, you'll be the last comment of the day. Go right ahead. Okay, well, 
I was just on and I got hung up on. I was calling for something different. Oh, about, so, yeah. I was asking about the economy. You want to put me back on hold or finish? No, you yeah. can ask a brief question. Go right No, ahead. he said this one's not about the economy. I got you. Okay, stand by. Else. Yep, hold on, Steve. <laughs> thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for yeah, having thanks, me. Matt. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, really appreciate it. Always a blast to have you on board today, no exception. So, Professor Matt Rosu here. Uh, uh, it is a blast to have Matt on. <laughs> <laughs> Economics professor. You just like it because his son's studying history. So. Right. I'm going <laughs> to recommend a book to him, <laughs> and he's going to recommend one to me. Dean of the Sigmund. <laughs> yeah, Joe's going to. Never mind. Dean of the Sigmund Wise School of Business. Thank you so much, sir, for coming in. Always uh, much appreciated. Thank you again.